This is KHOI Story City Ames, and you are listening to I Am Able Iowa, where we discuss the ability and disability. I'm Anna Magnuson, your host for today, wearing a coat because it is cold in the studio. Daniel Hadendorf and Meredith Frankham, our co-hosts, are nice and warm and are with us through the power of Zoom. Now, Samantha Edwards, our I Am Able Iowa researcher, provides a question to kick off her show, and she wants to know the following. Now, there was some interpretation issues with this question, so let's see how we do with this question. So this is what Samantha asks. Have you ever felt like you wanted to do something to help others, but felt there wasn't support when in reality there are lots of other people around thinking the very same thing? So, Daniel, you had one way of interpreting this question. What was it? I first read this question, I internalized it as you notice some large event. Like after reading this question for the first time, my mind immediately jumped to our current events like um, the events happening in Texas about those who are transgender and are being um, essentially dehumanized by certain government officials there, or uh, more internationally, the current events happening in Ukraine. And the way I read this question is, we, you know, we are individual human beings, and we don't necessarily have the capability to help with matters like that, especially if we're in a different state or in a different continent. And also just because we lack the ethos to actually make that impact to make a difference occur. And we feel like, oh, this is something we need to do. This is something that I should be able to do, but I can't. But I feel like everyone who's looking at this situation and feeling the same way, like even if there are ways to sort of somewhat help like they can make a financial donation if they're available or they can just help spread the word through social media but i think part of it is just accepting that that is the limitation of what they can do despite wanting to do more that's how i read the question again i'm not sure if that's how samantha intended it but that's the way that my mind read it i think that's a great interpretation and meredith how did you interpret the question um so it's a little bit confused as to what she was asking, but this is what I came up with for the answer. So um, as part of my uh, master's program, I've been doing a lot of research about trauma. And it occurred to me, based on some experiences in my own life, that while we talk a lot about how uh, survivors of trauma, especially uh, sexual trauma is what I'm thinking of specifically, um, there's a lot of research that goes into how do we help them? How can we help them move forward? And I started thinking about, but what do we do about the support people of people like that? The mothers, the brothers, the sisters, the friends, um, how do we help them become better support people? And so I started doing a bunch of uh, like research about this. Cause I was like, if, if I cannot find adequate research about this, I'm like, I need to do my own research and I need to put something together because I feel like this is a really important subject. People don't know how to talk about it. Um, and so I started doing research and I had an idea for a study that I wanted to do when I happened upon the exact study that I wanted to do. <laughs> they had done, and it was only uh, done in uh, 2017. Um, and from that study, I was able to use that as a springboard and find a whole bunch of other research that has happened since then. Now, 2017 isn't that, you know, long ago. It's pretty recent. And I thought it was interesting because my master's program is in counseling psychology. 
but all of the research I found was uh, in criminal justice, which I thought was super interesting. So there's still work to be done, but I, I definitely resonate with what Daniel's saying about how like you see something that's happening and you kind of have two options. You can go into hopelessness and despair because there's nothing we can do, or you can go into like Daniel said and like learn to accept it, but make a contribution where you are in within your own circle of, um, of, uh, I'm totally lost the word, but anyway, you get the idea of what I'm saying. I know that's the where, word. that's where my mind went with that. I know the Say intention, it. but I also can't think of the word, unfortunately. <laughs> well, we have a whole hour to come up with it. And my influence, influence. Fear of that's influence. it. That's it. <laughs> And speaking of fear of influence, I mean, so Samantha, I want to thank you for that question. And Brian, Jeff, you'll have an opportunity to answer that question, too. My interpretation of what Samantha was asking is that sometimes we're we encounter a problem and we feel like we're alone and that there um, aren't any ways to be able to to find ways to help and to make a difference in the world. But in actuality, when you talk about this in a platform like I Am Able Iowa, you find out there are lots of resources and people who care about the same issues and are willing to come together in a community to help, like mm-hmm. I Am Able Iowa. So, And today, speaking of community, we have our guest that uh, Daniel is going to introduce. Daniel, would you be so kind? Sure thing. Brian Packard resides in Ames and has been married to his wife, Anne, for over 32 years. They have two children. Jeffrey Dean Packard, approaching 26 years old, and Samuel Bryan Packard, who's over 21. They are empty nesters, minus two four-legged children, Izzy and Mario, many dachshunds. Currently employed as an account executive selling promotional, branding products, and apparel, Bryan has been in the Ames area since 1984 and is a graduate of Iowa State University. He attends Cornerstone Church in Ames and helps start a special needs ministry titled Wonderfully Made. Jeffrey Packard resides in Ames and moved out of the house within the last year. He's currently living in a duplex with two of his best friends. Currently, he's employed at Ag Leader Technology as an information technology support specialist. He was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of six and diagnosed with high-functioning autism, or HFA, at 16. He has held a job since he was that age as well. Jeffrey graduated from Ames High School and holds an associate's degree in criminal justice and electronic crime from the Des Moines Area Community College. He was named a National Merit Scholar semifinalist as a senior in high school, as well as an AP Scholar with honors. While in high school, he started a blog discussing issues related to autism as a way to share information and help decrease frustration. His interests include video games, computers, writing, reading, dogs, and on the side, a bit of cooking. Brian, Jeff, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, so how did you interpret Samantha's question? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think we've all been in that boat of wanting to to do something to help others. Um, I think that's kind of the way hopefully most people are wired. Uh, the hard part is trying to find those resources. Um, and I think the key is, I think Meredith mentioned that the key is, it's just being open and um, and uh, that it, it needs to be brought out, uh, communicated about, you know, this show, for example. Um, but also, I, I found in various challenges in the back of my life, uh, or, you know, go, looking back through my life, the Internet has a lot of crappy stuff on it. But the Internet also has a, is a great place to find people that have similar challenges. And um, I think you need to do your homework. Be careful. But at the same time, 
there is strength and support. Um, also, hopefully, you know, closer closer than that. You know, that could be somebody halfway across the world, but closer than that, hopefully family, friends. Um, you can have a level of understanding there as well to, to gain that close personal support. What do you think? Um, kind of pondering the question. Uh, understanding the um, understanding the question as like wanting to do something about an issue, and thinking that there isn't a support like structure or anything in place to enable me to do something about the issue. Um, this is going to sound potentially very bad, but I actually haven't ever been in that situation. Just I don't know. Anytime that I felt like I needed to do something about a situation, which uh, thankfully has only ever been something super minor, uh, I've sort of felt like I was able to do something about that, thankfully. Can we, um, since you're talking about being able to do something, um, in the intro, it mentioned your blog discussing. Can you maybe talk about that a little bit? And how yeah, sure. that was you solving a problem, maybe? Um, so the premise of the blog... Uh, I'm probably going to misquote this, so Dad, feel free to correct me if, if I get it wrong. Is, yeah. Um, so, is uh, increasing understanding and decreasing frustration? Because I don't know. I just felt like it was there was always a series of miscommunications between me and between my parents, and also between the school mm-hmm. with regard to like just the different needs that needed to be met or that were observed as needing to be met. And so uh, I've always felt that I was fairly blessed with an ability to communicate in writing. So the blog was a way for me to offer my perspective in a way that was easier for me uh, without being necessarily confrontational or uh, feeling like an uncomfortable situation for me, like person-to-person vocal communication sometimes can be. Yeah, and if, if I could add to that, um, I, you know, we encouraged him because he has such a fantastic writer, um, to, and he was able to express himself in the written word a lot better than, um, in the spoken word. And so it was really neat. And, and I don't know if neat is a good word, but cool, neat. I'm, I'm, I'm showing my age here, uh, to share, turn around and share that promoted on Facebook. Um, because we heard comments from people all over the country saying, thank you, um, saying, thank you. Wow. I, I now understand my aunt or excuse me, my niece or my nephew or my grandchild or whatever, by the way, Jeffrey could express it from a first person standpoint. And so, um, hopefully, you know, we helped people with that. He helped people with that. So from the sounds of it, you've mostly been hearing from uh, maybe older audiences who do have uh, children or, again, as you say, nieces, nephews, things like that. But have you ever, as you sort of inadvertently said, have you heard from someone who is struggling to speak with an adult in their life, a guardian, something like that, who does have some form of autism and also struggles to communicate? or not struggles, um, has a different means thereof. Sure. I would say, Daniel, no, not as much. Um, And it might have just been my sphere of influence, (laughs) you know, that uh, as I was sending sending it out, um, that uh, he was writing from first person and I was sharing from the parent uh, side. Uh, 
And I know what a strain uh, it, it can be, you know, to have your son be diagnosed and see him struggle um, and wanting to make sure that uh, we could get that out there. Just once again, I, I tried to piggyback off of his, you know, at the end of his very first post. And unfortunately, he hasn't written in quite a while. I'd like to see him get back to that, but that's another conversation. But um, especially since, you know, he, he's matured now and things have changed in his life. But I've always tried to piggyback off of his, if you increase understanding, you'll decrease frustration. And I think that that applies in this realm. That applies in any realm um, across the board. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think people's reactions always make sense once we know what they're thinking. And um, this sounds like it was a really great opportunity for Jeff to let everybody know what he was going through. Can we talk a little bit about um, the diagnosis process? I noticed that um, he was diagnosed with ADHD at six, um, but then not the not to HFA until sixteen. So, what motivated you? And I'm and I don't know who motivated. Was Jeff? Did you say, Dad? I think there's something else going on. Or Brian? Was it you saying? I think that we need to to look a little bit closer. Oh, you go. You probably have more to say on the subject. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, at the age of six, uh, there were a lot of challenges in school. Jeffrey walked into school at the age of five being able to read at 100 pages an hour. Um, he could read, and it was Harry Potter. It wasn't uh, see Dick and Jane run. And so we, had, we knew there was incredible intelligence there. Um, and his, I give a lot of credit to his uh, grandmother, uh, my mother-in-law. She uh, would just feed him books, and he'd just devour them, and he'd devour information in general on topics. So when we went to um, school, uh, you know, nothing against the school, and there's there's resources that are limited. So I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to come across, you know, that 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 they're bad. But there was clearly Jeffrey was kind of outside the box. Um, he was exceptional from an intellectual standpoint. So he got bored. And, you know, so at the age of six, it was like, okay, he's having temper, temper to outbursts, um, meltdowns, tantrums, um, and, and really unable to deal with his boredom. And um, that was not a knock on the other kids, but, you know, the way school is set up, it wasn't fast enough for him. And um, we had worked with the, the Bell and Blank Center at a very young age as well. Basically, they talked about the concept of twice exceptional. Well, anytime you have one exception to the norm or, or, or being inside outside the box, it's a challenge. Anytime you have two, it's, it's 10 times that challenge. They said, teach him as fast as possible. You know, give him information. He takes it in the first time. Um, so... You know, show, have him prove that he can do it and show and know it. You know, maybe make a competency-based setup so that once he knows it, move on, um, move on. And so handling all of those, you know, as adults, you know, as hopefully mature adult, I, I have the skills and we have the skills to, to handle those things. He did not at the age of six. But things just didn't get better, at, frankly, and um, there were some challenges and lack of understanding and, and – uh, at the age of 11, we decided to have him tested again because I really felt like things weren't, it wasn't right. And I had done my own research and um, I felt like it was Asperger's. It was called Asperger's at that time. Um, but uh, it's still, 
we went to the same doctor. It was still came back his diagnosis. And it's a very subjective process, frankly. Um, and so um, there's a lot of overlap between different diagnoses, et cetera. But um, at the age of 11, it was still that way. I still wasn't ready to to give that up. And finally, we went. We were talking with a psychiatrist, and at the age of 16, he came to us and said, no, I, I think it's definitely high-functioning autism. And this was a different doctor. And so that, I guess I'm the one who pushed for it. I just, in, in my gut, felt, I, I felt that that was correct. So, Daniel, I see you nodding your head, especially when Brian said a subjective diagnosis. What were you connecting to? Well, the, the thing about the subjective diagnosis specifically is just because of autism as, as we know, it's a spectrum. And so sure. because you can't really pinpoint, aha, low variable A and variable B have been noticed. Therefore, this must be a case of autism. It's, it's, there's so many things that go into it. Like it's, it, it is impossible to just stick a pin somewhere and say, there, that's what our evidence is. So I can definitely see one doctor saying, no, it's, I see symptoms of X and Y, but not Z. And then you go to another one and say, no, no, there's, there's the symptoms there, there, and there. So we can make this conclusion instead. So I, mm, because again, I, I don't want to say like, oh, this, this doctor was clearly misinformed, but more so it's, it's very odd because now I'm just thinking about my own past. When I was diagnosed in um, either 1999 or 2000, I can never get my own story straight. This was back before um, it was a terribly, I don't, I don't want to say common, but it was significantly rarer for someone to actually be diagnosed with autism at my age. So I'm not certain if just if I were to go to a different doctor back then, would they have said something? If I were to go to a doctor now, would they still say, oh, yes, you still have those traits. See you later. It's it's really weird. It's it's this, I guess it's sort of like um, almost a butterfly effect. Like what what could have happened if you were diagnosed by someone else? So and since we're talking about the diagnosis, Jeffrey, uh, can you maybe tell us a little bit about high-functioning autism? Uh, yeah, sort of. It's a bit of an open-ended question, so could you uh, perhaps narrow that down a little bit? Why don't you tell me about your experience with HFA? What kind of symptoms do you experience? Um, the symptom that I probably noticed the most is uh, sort of... Uh, hypersensitivity to certain stimuli, uh, particularly with foods. There's a lot of foods that I just can't eat because of either the texture or the taste. It just, for whatever reason, it, it throws a response with my body that it's like, nope, don't, don't want to eat this, won't eat it. So like bell peppers, for example, I, I can't eat them. Um, that's, that's like the biggest one off the, yeah, some some noises as well. Um, I've noticed that uh, paradoxically, I basically need a uh, a white noise generator in order to actually get to sleep properly at night. Um, other other than other than that, uh, really really averse to crowds. There's just too many people generally making too much noise. Some people have way too much deodorant. Some people don't have nearly enough, and. Um, I'm struggling to think of examples. I had like a whole list 
midst of them, and they've just flown out the window. That's okay. So, um, Jeff and uh, Daniel, so what does a diagnosis mean to you? I mean, so there's the symptoms and the um, that, but what does it mean to you when you were diagnosed? Did that give you comfort knowing that there was something that like could be identified that like explained um, your circumstances? Or I, I guess I don't know. So, what does what does it mean to you? Uh, for me, it was definitely comforting knowing it's like, oh, there's a word. People have already identified like this set of issues, and that means that they've already studied it, and there are resources that are available to actually help with the problem. So for me, because like we had known there was something going on that was a little bit more in-depth than just simple ADHD. I say simple, that's plenty bad by itself, but we, we had figured that there was something else going on and had been trying to identify that for like 10 years. And then finally at 16, get diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. And it's like, finally, we, we have a name we can put to this. And now we can like do Google searches for that directly and figure out how we can address that directly instead of just Googling a fairly non-specific set of uh, symptoms. Well, and I think it truly increased our understanding even further helped us to pinpoint a little better. Uh, sensory processing was something that went we, was a light bulb for us. We saw that he had challenges with food. We weren't quite sure, you know, what was going on, if he ate something, and then all of a sudden, you know. So, so we started processing and thinking through his life and, and uh, you know, like walking through the halls of, of Ames High during the, the past, you know, I mean, that's chaotic. That's chaotic for anybody. But somebody who challenges, who has challenges with smell, light, noise, crowds, etc., that's beyond chaotic. That's traumatic. And so, you know, driving into Ames High on a given any given day or leaving on any given day is drives me crazy. Uh, no pun intended there. But um, and so Jeffrey just you know. Uh, figured out ways to cope with those types of things. But we understood the concept of sensory processing. I think that was our big eye-opener. And how about for you, Daniel? Again, it was very curious because when you're diagnosed with something, but you're at an age where you're not really able to comprehend what that means, it's like, I, I was five. I was too busy thinking about video games. Like, I don't think I really learned to sort of understand my symptoms and actually work around them and learn to better live my life until I was in my 20s. And that sounds like, you know, a lack of self-understanding. And for the most part, it kind of was. Like, when I was going through puberty and things like that, I, I was just like, ah, this must be what it's like to be a high schooler. Because, like, I was really gullible. I didn't really know what I was doing. I sometimes struggled academically because I just was unable to really have my brain shift from middle school mode to high school mode or even elementary school to middle school mode at some points. So just, and my parents would always say like, you know, the doctors are going to say mentally you're a few years behind your peers, but we just ask you to do your best. And I say, I don't always know what my best means because I don't know how to compare it to the average person because I don't know how an average person functions. I barely know how I function. So again, when I was in my 20s, when I finally uh, was able to communicate more with my peers, that's when I started to realize, oh, I guess this is sort of 
an example of how this aspect of my life works. And like, oh, this is why sometimes I need to communicate with my eyes closed because otherwise I'm just going to be overstimulated visually. Like, and again, it's, it's not humiliating necessarily because at least eventually I understand, was able to understand how my brain functions. But that's sort of the weird um, balance for having an, uh, a diagnosis, not only so early in my life, but also to go back to uh, your point there, Brian, the, the fact that I was sort of diagnosed before or at like sort of the dawn of the age of the Internet. Mm-hmm. So like you could sort of speak to a handful of other folks who had family or themselves had autism, but it was like, well, this doesn't really help much. It's just more people asking for help. So what do you think is the biggest misconception about HFA? For both of us? Uh, yeah, for both of you, but let's start with Jeff. I would I would say that the, the biggest misconception about uh, HFA is probably that people have this idea in their heads. And I've noticed less and less of this. I'm not sure if that's because this misconception is actively going away or just because like my sphere of people is relatively small and they're all familiar with me but uh i feel like a lot of people would tend to assume that someone with hfa is going to behave exactly like the character sheldon cooper from the big bang theory um which is not necessarily the case because um but not at well not everyone with hfa is going to behave exactly like that it's called the autism spectrum for a reason and i had one time where i told a coworker at my first job that i was autistic which i've always been pretty free about giving that information out i don't particularly care if people have a negative impression of me because of it uh and his immediate response was to blow me off and go you're not autistic uh because i would imagine i didn't match that stereotype exactly so, yeah, I can sort of agree with that. Like, there are still some stereotypes that exist in terms of those with autism. One I still see pretty frequently is that autistic folks would have either selective or just general mutism. Like, they wouldn't want to speak. There's maybe an essence of shyness about them. Because, like, when I started doing the theater, my initial thought was, aha, I'm breaking the stereotype because this is not what they expect autistic folks to do. And then I realized, oh, wait, this is just a means of letting us uh, portray emotions and thoughts that are just pre-penned by someone, which in in my little realm of the spectrum just makes it extremely easy. Because if there's one thing my autism can do, it's allow me to convey the thoughts and opinions of others pretty well. So again, just like any time someone does make one of those stereotypes, primarily from things like mass media, which given the success of the Big Bang Theory has not really helped matters there. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't know, it's it's not frustrating necessarily because like you... Again, if something is so unavoidable on television, then, like, I get it. You're going to make this assumption. But we spend so much time being like, hey, this is a faulty assumption that we just end up starting to dislike the show as a result, or at the very least, the writers. Well, Well, and I think I'm just going to say, so if you're just tuning in, you're listening to I Am Able Iowa on KHOI, and we're talking with Brian and Jeff Packard about um, all sorts of great stuff. So I totally interrupted Meredith for that. (laughs) 
No, I I was just going to agree with Daniel, generally speaking. I think that stereotypes, generally speaking, for anything, whether we're talking about autism or whether we're talking about, you know, anything else, um, are problematic. But they are the beginning of a conversation, which I think um, can make them an interesting component. So, Brian, how do you think that things have changed for people with disabilities over the last 20 years? How How have you seen things change with Jeff? Um. Yeah, that's a good question. How have they changed? I would say that um, we have we have made a conscious effort to like like uh, the mantra of "I am able." You know, um, focus on the ability versus the disability. That was always the approach that we took um, because I believe everybody is brilliant in some way and somehow. And um, uh, sometimes I may not see it because it's, I'm not privy to that information for whatever reason. Um, sometimes I may just look strictly at when my son is acting out at me, and I want to take that personally. Um, so I think in general, it, once again, increasing that understanding. I know I keep harping and going back to that. Um, and with Jeff, you know, he, he's been able to communicate it better. I, re- I think a, a real epiphany, an aha moment for us was when he was officially diagnosed with high-functioning autism, um, it, it was one of those, oh, okay. The, I, I actually was very, I don't want to say pleased, but I was very much, um, uh, it very much led me to, okay, now what are we going to do with this information? And I think that was really the beginning of the turn for Jeffrey from some you know, extreme challenges that we had had in our family and for him to, um, moving forward, you're working, driving, um, being friends, having some good, good friends, etc. So I don't know. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but um, I, I that's that's what I've seen. And and then him, I think it's reciprocated. He has reciprocated it. He's worked hard at it as well. Um, but yet, um, you know, just he's uh, he's understood himself more. And uh, that, I'm sure, has come with maturity as well. So you mentioned um, him working and driving. Let's talk about that. He, um, Jeff, you went to work at the age of 16. What was that like? Was it hard for you? Uh, initially, it was, yes, just because it's a, it's a new experience. I've always really struggled with new experiences that are outside of sort of my routine. And in particular, it was a situation working in a kitchen in a restaurant with a whole bunch of people who already had an existing social dynamic that I was not a part of and remained on the outside of for quite some time. Um, thankfully, it was not a customer-facing position, at least at the start, because initially I was just washing dishes And that's a pretty simple, pretty mechanistic task that you can just sort of set on autopilot. And once you're good at it, you your body just sort of does it by itself and your brain is free to sort of process other things, which is nice. Yeah. What about you, Brian? What did you notice about Jeff in his first job? Uh, I was amazed. I was so proud of him. Um, He... uh, you know, he, he wanted a computer. You know, he wanted to build his own computer. He had it all planned out, I think, at the time and, you know, this and that. And, and of course, was very much into gaming, you know. And um, I'm like, okay, well, go. You know, he, I, one of my challenges as a parent, and I think any parent of a, of a, challenge, of a, of a, a child with a diagnosis 
of any kind is what happens when I'm gone, you know, um, when mom and dad are no longer here. And, you know, I want him to be able to function and, and, and be out there. So obviously driving, you know, transportation, job. And so I just said, you know, let's get you a job. I fortunately had a contact that I knew was hiring for a, a position, but I did not, I did not lobby for it. I just asked if he could have an interview. And after that, it's I, I counseled Jeffrey on what I felt that interview would look like. And Jeffrey knocked it out of the park. I was so proud of him. And so um, he then became this, you know, this is the good stuff about, there's a lot of great stuff about HFA. And, and one of them is Jeffrey is very, very reliable. Um, if he's scheduled to be there at five o'clock, he'll be there at 450. Um, he, you know, if he's, he, he just is a great employee and I'm, I couldn't be more proud of him. And then it entertained, it, it grew into where he was, um, had more customer facing opportunities with delivery. Um, I don't, I don't know if I could be a delivery driver. It's not, you know, people are constantly looking for delivery drivers because they can't keep them. And, you have to drive. You have to. What if a train slows you down and for no no fault of your own, you're 15 minutes late in this town? You know, there's enough places. And and what if that person, when you open the door, you know, is not very nice? How was my son going to handle that? When he was driving, I was like, what if he gets pulled over for speeding? Everybody is going to everybody stresses out when they see uh, lights from a police officer behind them. And it's not a knock on police officers. It's just that's that's a you know. And so how was he going to handle those things? Those were certainly fears of, of mine and concerns, but he has handled them incredibly well. And I, I couldn't be more proud of him. So, Jeff, when you hear that feedback from your dad, what do, what are you thinking? Uh, I'm thinking that I'm very happy that he's proud of me. Um, and yeah, with the with the customer facing portion of the job, it was pretty it was pretty stressful at first, especially because as a delivery driver, that's more than just customer facing. That's you're the only person there. You are the sole representative of the company there, which means like if they're mad at the company. They're mad at you. They're probably take it out on you. Uh, thankfully, I was blessed to only have to put up with that really one time, uh, which I handled pretty well. I honestly just kind of laughed it off because the complaint in question was rather ridiculous. But, um, but yeah, I think uh, he asked me. My father asked me one time exactly how how I was able to handle that so well. He was just curious because of my social challenges. And I said, well, basically, I can I can pretend to be social for like five minutes. You only have to be there for five minutes, absolute tops, and I can I can pretend to do anything, just about anything for five minutes. So one of the things that Brian that you talked about is the fear of um, of a police officer would pull Jeff over. So one of the things that um, I think Jeff, with your blog, both you and Daniel have this in common that you're both are very good writers. Um, and so that blog, I'm going to circle back to that about increasing awareness and decreasing frustration. So can you share one of the blog postings that maybe created the most um, interest and in dialogue that you can remember? Uh, which, which one would that be? Um, I would say it was one specifically to that to that situation about, but also one time we visited um 
uh, well, I know. Uh, I'm sorry. All of a sudden hit me. Thank you. You know, there was a time where going back to the tragedy of the Newtown school shooting, um, and it turned out, you know, it turned out in some cases, and Daniel, I don't know what you what you think about this, but it just, it always seemed like, well, the media is going to do all their background on this person. Oh, they have a diagnosis. And I mean, I just got to the point where anything that went bad like that, there was usually a diagnosis. And a lot of times it was autism or, or you know, I mean, not a lot, but you know, there was time. And that just so happened that that young man had that kind of diagnosis. And so um, Jeffrey wrote a blog about that, about that post, you know, just trying to realize that what you're hearing in the media isn't, isn't what is actually accurate. That I think he said specifically that the, the chances of, you know, someone with his diagnosis or that diagnosis, uh, there's many more components to it and you don't want to just harp on one you know there's so many pieces to the puzzle of of, of, a, of a tragedy like that um another one that i remember if i stimulate him to to come converse is we went to uh new york city and um we did it a little bit differently we stayed in kind of the i don't know non-touristy parts we kind of stayed away from the crowds but we did spend a few hours on times square and that was a challenge for me, just way too much. Um, but for him, he really struggled. And you wrote about that as well. Mm-hmm. So he might be able to elaborate further. Um, regrettably, I can't actually elaborate that much <laughs> further. I don't recall a lot of the details of the blog post. However, we did have one vacation, either to Chicago or to New York City, uh, where during during that we took a trip across the, across the city in a bus using public transit, which was absolutely ludicrously crowded. And that was, um, well, about the closest approximation of hell on earth that I can think of topping my previous closest approximation of the high school hallway and passing period, because there was just too many people too much like bright sunlight as well. And not really enough room for me to kind of hole up in a sort in a sort of space of my own and shut like all of the offending stimuli out. So, Daniel, as you're listening to um, Jeff talk, Jeffrey talk, what, what are you thinking and your responses and experiences? Are they similar? Um, somewhat. Like in terms of crowds, it's sort of weird. Like if I am one person in. Like, I guess it sort of depends on your definition of crowd. Like, I, I, but, uh, b- before the, uh, unprecedented times were in, I used to attend a few concerts and, like, they weren't crowded because the only concerts I attended were for ska bands with very limited, uh, mass appeal. But it was a fairly crowded room, but I still had, like, a little, a little bit of wiggle room. I could just, join in with the with the ragamounts and scream obscenities because that's what ska is all about but when we're talking about something like public transit if i'm taking um even something as simple as cyride and it's late enough on a weekend that it's full of a bunch of drunk college students i'm not gonna have a good time I just want to sit somewhere and maybe collect my thoughts and they're going to start doing pull-ups on the bars that you're supposed to just hold on to to keep your balance. 
Like it's they I I guess the 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 proper phrase would be what I'm looking for and what's being provided don't overlap. Like there's and I mean this it is unfair to ask of a public service to have a little designated area specifically for my needs. Like, well, my needs specifically. Like, either you can you can have, you know, an area where people, like, you know, you're tired, you sit at the front. But, like, if it's like, those who match all of these boxes that are checked can sit in this small glass box we put in the back of the bus. Like, that, that's not, that's outlandish. Like, there's a point where the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. But at the same time, like, there comes a point where you sort of realize, okay... This is how this is going to be. So I, for my own mental health, I'm just going to have to avoid this circumstance from here on out as much as I possibly can. So, Daniel, I, based on what you're saying, I kind of want to circle back to my initial, like, the, the thought-provoking question we talked about earlier. And I was, you know, talking about my trauma research and what can the support people do. And so I kind of want to ask that question in uh, the HFA context. What is it? that people around you can do to make your life easier. Because from my perspective, it seems like people who are neuroatypical are always trying to help or to conform to neurotypical behaviors. And I think it would be really nice if neurotypical people could maybe help out a little bit. (laughs) So tell us what you think people could do to help um, in a situation on maybe where there's a really crowded bus or walking down the hallway. And, and I realize, you know, everybody be silent. Nobody make any noise. It's not realistic. But I do think there are some things that people could do. Jeff, do you want to start? Oh, I apologize. I thought that was directed specifically at Daniel. Um, in my case, I think just uh, sometimes I've sort of wished that I could put up a sign that basically says out to lunch just on my forehead or something. And and go like okay, I am in, I am in siege mode right now. Please do not talk to me. Do not attempt interaction. I I am go- I am going to lock the doors to my head and throw away the key. And just sometimes I need like a little bit of time to get away from people and totally decompress. So for example, every day I am fortunate enough that I'm close. I live close enough to my workplace. For lunch break, I will drive home get myself something to eat and then lock myself in my room and watch a YouTube video while I eat it. Mm-hmm. Because that way it's just, I have some time where it is just me and something that I'm interested in and also food. And then I can drive back to work and continue on with the rest of the work day. Then after work, when I get home, I usually spend like about an hour, hour and a half just alone decompressing and like going like, okay, no people right now, just me and the internet which is admittedly a lot of people, but not in the annoying sense, usually, because you can avoid the annoying people on the internet significantly easier. Right. You have control over who you allow into your space. Okay. So what I'm hearing you say then is that you need people to just kind of let you uh, be alone. Yes. Yes, that's correct. Sometimes it's like, sometimes I just need not to have human contact, mm-hmm. which I think is, yes, uh, which is just, I think, a little paradoxical for some people because it com- it comes across as like, well, if I'm, if I am to help you, 
deal with something that requires that I interact with you. And the exact opposite is actually what I, what I would rather have in those instances. Right. Well, and I think, though, in order to be helpful to the person who needs help, we really need to know what that person needs, not what we think that person needs. So thank you for bringing that up. So in your case, sometimes you just need space to just be alone. What about you, Daniel? Well, you just said it yourself. It's communication. Like, Mm -hmm. if, like, again, sometimes I don't actually know what my needs are, but, like, I can sort of determine to myself, okay, I'm really concerned concentrated on this task and i know if someone interrupts this task i'm not going to be very happy because like there's a point where my brain's like okay task time time for tasks but after that time ends i'm like okay now i can just be interrupted and nothing will go wrong but like it's so difficult for me to you know pinpoint when those tasks are going to occur because you there it is not always possible to just have everything planned out ahead of time like I, despite my saying that, like, oh, I like when I know when things are going to happen. Like, I, I can't control literally everything. I'm not going to say, like, ah, 10.24 a.m., I'm going to sneeze now. Like, there's, there's always going to be something that's going to occur that, you know, is not going to be part of the plan. And uh, somewhat ironically, like, that that works if I'm doing something like uh, improvisational comedy. But again... That's because my brain is in task mode where it's telling me, oh, right now I have to adapt, but I can't adapt to when I'm in the middle of adapting and someone says I can't adapt. It's a, it, at this point, it sort of just gets away from me. But like, what I need to do is just if I meet someone new, if I'm going to be living with someone or be spending a lot of time with someone, we just need to have a sit down over coffee or something and say, hey, this is how my body functions. If X happens, it's because of Y. I don't mean any offense if something negative occurs because of it. There's a difference when my brain knows how it's functioning and knows how it isn't. Just As long as those boundaries are clear and as long as those expectations are there, I guess, for lack of a better term, then things are fine. But again, the difficulty there is that it's always on a person-to-person basis rather than group-wise. And I think that's where we're just going to have to accept, you know, sometimes we can we just have to fake being neurotypical. And, like, that that's what I do in my work. Like, it is a person-to-person job. Like, someone comes up, they're going to check something out. It is my job to scan their items and say maybe the same 50 words in my vocabulary. If something does come up and I actually have to start using any aspect of my brain, like maybe they're going to start saying, uh-huh, this guy's not like us. But just at that point, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to see them again. Like they're just a person. That's part of the job. And mm-hmm. to an extent, just being a social individual being someone in society is to an extent a job mm-hmm. and what? when you're done with your job you get to go home and you get to do your own thing and rest mm-hmm. i think you do a great job daniel though of uh, that communication piece so you do that with our guests beforehand so i wanted to ask to you as far as if i notice something different like for example i have put way too much perfume on and then i've overdosed it with some deodorant so what kind of thing, like, so if that's overwhelming to you and um, not helpful, what, what w- 
could I say if I know something is different? If I said, "Ooh, do I stink to you?" Would that be helpful to you? Or if I said, um, "I'm super loud and I'm doing a dance party and there's too much noise that I'm making," are there things that I can ask in a way that would be helpful if I notice that you're uncomfortable? And then that's for Jeff, Jeffrey, or Daniel. Jeffrey, what do you think? Um, yeah, I think I think that that's. Uh that's definitely something that's useful. That's a, a very, very helpful thing. Cause I've noticed like sometimes when I'm in that mode, because I related very heavily to what Daniel was just saying, where it's like sometimes brain focused on task and then someone interrupts task. And I'm just sitting there like, why did you do that? I was busy doing something. And it's not always immediately apparent. So it comes across as me being like, like an angry pit bull that you are attempting to take, take food away from. And I feel like I come across as a massive jerk when that happens. Um, but like when, when that situation is identified, just asking like, were, were you like focused on something? Is this throwing you off? Or is this like sensory thing, like being loud or smelling too strongly of deodorant or something? Asking about that, I feel like would be very helpful because when I'm in that particular mode, I always feel like kind of like a wind-up toy that's been wound a little too tight. And I feel like if I if I put one foot wrong, I'm going to kind of just explode and little bits of cogs and sprockets are going to go everywhere. Uh, so I'm not like operating at like the, in the mindset that's like I can correctly identify and and reasonably go, hey, I was uh, I was in the middle of something and due to the way that my brain functions, I'm kind of like hung up on that. Can, can I finish that and then get back to you and we can address this when like I'm mentally prepared for it. I'm not, I'm not usually when I'm that thrown off kind of capable of recognizing that and then articulating that in a way that then doesn't come across as me snapping at the person like I'm busy, go away. So yeah, that's it's definitely cool. helpful to receive the out kind of from from the other individual there. So what I'm hearing is that hey, it's yeah. okay to ask questions, right? And just to to help connect. And what were you going to say, Brian? I, I was just going to uh, build on that for just a second. For me, um, what I learned is 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 proactivity versus reactivity um, in, in, as much as I possibly can. And it's just because I've, I've grown to understand him um, and uh, – you know, it's, it's, it's still hard and it can be touchy, but yeah, there were times where I used to take personal offense to him, maybe snapping at me. And uh, now, now it's like, you know, if I call him up at five 30 and he got off work at five uh, and, and it's like, I try not to do that anymore because he's expressed that to me. Um, he's expressed it to me. Actually now he does quite well with it. He goes, I need my decompression time. I'm like, Hey, I respect that. I would do that hopefully for anybody, I hope. Um, but um, it just gives him what he needs. You really bring up an important point, Brian, and that is that we need to meet people where they are yeah. and not try to impose our personality or values on other people, but we need to meet them where they are and give them what they need. And I'll tell you, that's a very challenging scenario for in a parent-son relationship uh, at times. You know, it's like, well, I'm in charge here. I'm the dad and I should make, you know, my kids should listen to me. You know, I mean, it's, it's not like I'm an ogre or I don't, I don't think I was, but um, at times I was, I'm sure now I think about it. So <laughs> talk about some of the challenges though. I'm actually really interested in hearing some of the challenges of being a parent of a child with HFA. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, 
it is challenging for what he said. Um, it is challenging for, okay, when, you know, I, my dad was strict, you know, and, and so my dad said to do something, I better do it. And, uh, I respect my dad, you know, uh, more than any man on this earth. And, uh, so, um, I sometimes took that as a lack of just a lack of respect from Jeffrey. So you took it personal and, so having to manage that, learn that, once again, once my understanding went up, I took it less personal. But um, just learning the nuances of getting to know somebody, whatever their diagnosis or lack of diagnosis is. I mean, if we just, if we all, I think, and this is a sandbox moment here, but if we all took that approach, look what this world would look like. I mean, it'd be great. And um, so... You know, having him understanding that I, I actually started processing the man going to driving to high school has to be challenging for him. You know, and I asked him the question. I said, OK, so you just went through the hallways of a 4A school with lockers slamming, smells, lights, bump people bumping into you. And you've got a 40 or 50 minute class. How how long does it take you to come down so that you can focus on what's going being said in the class? And he said you know, 10 minutes. Well, the first 10 minutes of every class is the most important part of the class in most cases. And I said, okay, so now we get, you're starting to get near to the end of the class. How are you, you know, are you starting to worry about that? And, you know, is it getting into, you creeping into your mindset so that now you're not listening to the last 10 seconds or 10 minutes of the class, excuse me. And um, so, the, you know, you miss out on the, the, the two most important parts in, in terms of trying to make that work. And that's just one example. He, you know, he had coping skills and he, Daniel, you know, had mentioned some coping skills that he had, uh, you incorporate and we all have to, to do that. I had to come up with coping skills as a parent as well and change the way I parented Jeffrey. And I hope I got better and better as my understanding got better and better. Brian, I think you should write a book. So as we come to the end <laughs> As we come to the end of the show, I do want to ask one of Samantha's questions, and she asked this, uh, what are your thoughts on the term disability in of itself? And I think this is a good way to kind of conclude our show. So let's start with you, Brian, and then we'll go to uh, Jeff and Daniel, Jeffrey and Daniel. To, what are your well, thoughts? Um, the term disability is, I think, something that society uses to, um, to say different to, to talk about difference. Uh, well, I think we're all different, first of all. So uh, I may have disabilities. They may not be diagnosed, per se. They may not have a name on them. Um, I'm not trying to uh, say that mine is worse or better than, than what Daniel and, and Jeffrey have or anyone. Um, but I've our, our approach was always to focus, and, and particularly school was challenging. And it's, it's not that school is bad. But it was challenging because I think of resources. And, and um, there were some, let's just say there were some instructors that were set in their ways as well. But uh, I always tried to get and lobby for Jeffrey, advocate for Jeffrey to focus on the ability, his incredible abilities, to see the abilities in anyone, whether they are on the autism spectrum or whether they uh, are in a wheelchair or whether, you know, the challenge of high-functioning autism is we have two young men here who are brilliant and um, can communicate quite well. And frankly, 95% of the people out there probably can't see that they may have a challenge. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so uh, I I don't like the term disability too much. I, I you know I, I'm a big fan of let's let's look at the gla- a positivity glass half full ability and go from there. And Jeffrey, uh, personally, I I do kind of agree in the sense that disability, as it refers to HFA, is a little bit off because it's not 100% a disability in the sense of just your your head sort of like works a little bit differently than the norm but it's not inherently less the problem is is that the social like setting that that society forces you to interact with um the way that that my head works it is inherently more difficult for me to to uh interact with that as easily as a neurotypical individual and in that sense i feel like the term disability is somewhat warranted and does kind of describe what it is um because if you're different enough outside of the norm and your social and mental needs are different than society which is going to generally go for the most like commonly acceptable ways of de- of dealing with people and and presenting yourself to the rest of society it, it is going to be more difficult than you just by default that's simply how how it works and thankfully it seems like it's getting better and better at recognizing that and accommodating people like but the term still in my opinion is is uh, fairly warranted and it, it i don't find it personally that insulting I'm going to give you the last 10 seconds because we have, we're running out of time. Jeffrey, what would you like others to know from today's show and just your life in 15 seconds? Sorry to say. In, in 15 seconds. Wow. Uh, no pressure. <laughs> uh, basically, sometimes I am going to come across as a massive jerk. I promise I don't mean it personally. If I mean it personally, it will be very, very apparent. <laughs> okay. it's, just, it's just an accident most of the time. Okay. Meredith. Oh, this is KHOI Story City Ames. You have been listening to I Am Able Iowa. I Am Able Iowa airs the first and last Saturday morning of each month at 9 a.m. on KHOI 89.1 FM. You can also hear us streaming live online at khoifm.org. On the Saturdays in the middle of the month, please tune in to Insight of the Mind with Julie Saxton, who provides valuable information about mental health issues. We invite you to share your comments, questions, and program ideas with us at contact at IamAbleIowa.com. And if you visit IamAbleIowa.com, you will find previous episodes and more information about our program. I Am Able Iowa is produced by Able Up Iowa, headquartered in Ames, Iowa. Able Up Iowa helps people of all abilities become independent by providing solutions to financial needs and empowering them to achieve their financial goals. Our I Am Able Iowa music was composed and performed by Sean Ryan. Thank you, Sean. I Am Able Iowa website is brought to you by Barbara Wright, Iowa Able Foundation, or Able Up Iowa, Kurt Soderberg, and Lynn Van Clark. Thank you to Samantha Edwards. Thank you to Dr. Jesse Bollinger at Bollinger Solutions for his assistance with producing, scripting, and managing our social media. Thank you for listening. And until next time, this is Anna Magnuson, Daniel Hedendorf, and Meredith Frankham saying, you are able, Iowa.